0: Chris just waiting in the back now like a big fucking rock star. No, wait a minute, wait a minute. We
1: didn't didn't properly coordinate beforehand. I thought walking onto a stage when the theme music finishes might get a round of applause. Now I just look like I think this is all about me. (laughs) Truly, this podcast is all about you, Chris, anyway, so it's good to go. Um, Okay, so setting up for the show tonight was absolutely smooth as you could... As you could hope for. Yeah, it was the smoothest thing yeah, I've ever done in my amazing. life. Absolutely perfect. So we're all extremely calm and everything's working perfectly. <laughs> and I'm not hungover at all. I'm freaking out, man. I'm not going to lie. i <laughs> freaking out here. Uh, at least the last time there was only like five people here. Now there's actually human beings here. So we've all, yeah. we better make it good. <laughs> victims of our <their> own success. <laughs> Fuck.
0: Um, Do you want to start it off properly then?
1: No. No. Um, so this is a podcast. This is going to be edited later on. Um... It's probably going to be impossible to cut out your heckles. You you, you can contribute heckles as long as they're well considered and funny. <laughs> Prefer if they're not funnier than us. So we're uh, Mark. You might as well introduce this because right. this is your fucking choice.
0: <laughs> so thank you everybody for coming. I, I know I didn't say that, but thanks for coming. Oh. <laughs> And this is the Pop Punk mixtape, oh, it's 100th episode, uh, I can't believe we've been sitting in a room with these two fuckers for 100 fucking episodes, it's taken years of my life. I definitely,
1: I definitely didn't expect to market in this fashion.
0: Yeah, um, but yeah, so thank you again, thanks for coming, we're going to talk about this much maligned genre, which uh, was very much my upbringing in music, I suppose you could say.
1: I think uh, I've contributed at least 50% of that maligning. <laughs>
0: When we talk about your suggestion, we can uh, definitely unpack that. Um, but we did grunge last one, we're doing pop-up this one. We've already done Dave's black metal one, but I'm sure he's got something. And
1: Dave's new metal one. And That's Dave's not I'm two up, aren't I? I've so, got a lot of payback due. <laughs> yeah. Um, I'd, I'd like to also uh, forward the caveat. I'm sorry about my voice, it's a little bit off. I've been really, really ill all week. Coincidentally, the more I studied pop punk, the, the sicker I got <laughs> to the point where I couldn't leave my bed which is around about the time we got to about 1999, 2000 and Blink-182 we were kind of at their peak so yeah, that's not a coincidence
0: so how this is going to go, we're going to give you a bit of a history on pop-punk, and then after that, we're going to pick three records. Uh, there'll be an intermission in between both parts, where Kyle, Lover's Turning Monsters, is going to play some uh, pop-punk songs on the ukulele. Can we please cheer for that?
1: Woo! <laughs> Thank you. Uh, it's going to be a fucking lovely night. Shall we begin, gentlemen? Um, yeah, also, there, there is going to be an opportunity to ask some questions before we do the Nexus. We've done a Nexus uh, which was suggested by somebody who won it in the competition. Mm -hmm. Um, And we'll give you a chance to ask some questions before that. So if there's anything we don't cover, anything we say that you think is factually inaccurate or morally objectionable, uh, then you can raise that then. And if you just want to bam us up, you can raise that then as well, because this is the only time where this gets to be a two-way process. So we're going to kind of break down the history and we'll fly through it a little bit. We'll take some areas... I mercifully was able to take the early years um, when it was still too young to do any real damage mm-hmm. and uh, I'm going to start with that um, obviously I, I don't want to exhaustively of chart the origins of guitar music and punk music and electricity yes and you do, <laughs> you do that every fucking week <laughs> yeah and opposable thumbs um, basically big names in the early history of punk music were the Stooges and the MC5 uh, there was also a Detroit act called Death from about 1971 Are really worth looking into because they're totally overlooked and there's something that hopefully one day we get to cover in a bit more detail. And actually there's also a, a Peruvian act of all of all things um, called Los Psychos, um, who were I think even earlier than that and who really don't look like a punk band, but when you hear them it's 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 pretty amazing what they were doing with absolutely no influences to pull from. <speaking in Spanish> But these kind of acts, I think, are kind of commonly called proto-punk now. Anyway, uh, they were sort of succeeded. Um, in this kind of first phase of specifically pop-punk, uh, the years will include stuff like 1977. You had bands like Vibrators. 78, you had the uh, Radiators from Space and the Adverts. The Adverts were kind of one of the first bands to lean really heavily on the bored teenagers kind of aspect of the lyrics. 79 you had the Buzzcocks, Eighteen eighty one, you had the Undertones, although those acts um, and maybe even Radiators from Space as well they've got more in keeping with what went on to become New Wave, I think, and we'll go mention that. Uh, then from like 83, 84, 85 you've got uh, The Dickies released a song called Rosemary, Rosemary. Uh, 84 Mr T Experience had a song called Disconnection Uh, 85 The Descendants uh, obviously The Descendants who we've covered at length in the show before and I think the sound of those bands is more commonly what all of us consider pop punk certainly what I consider pop punk um, but in terms of like the really early touchstones uh, the two that really jump out in 76 in the USA you had the Ramones uh, and when the Ramones released their self-titled record it had, it's the record with like, Blitzkrieg Bop it's the record with a Punk And obviously, I mean, with any kind of label debates always going to rage. But this is kind of seen as maybe the first punk release, the first punk rock release. Um, what's really telling, uh, especially towards—it's not really a case we're building, but in terms of trying to narrow down what we're talking about, um, the Ramones loved Motown. The Ramones loved. 60s pop music in particular uh, they loved the Supremes, they loved the Ronettes, they loved the Beach Boys um, they covered a lot of songs, they covered Let's Dance, they covered I Wanna Be Your Boyfriend they covered uh, Needles and Pins, that Still Needles and, pins. Um, and they also really loved like bubblegum pop of the time, like the Bay City Rollers uh, and actually the similarities are, are pretty striking, so as part of our little visual aid here which people just listening to the online version won't get I've um, got a wee clip here to try and show you the, the similarities between the Ramones and the Bay City Rollers, which is not something you hear very often
0: said so famously hate each other now and they bam
1: each other up before they go on stage yeah all I, the time. I believe I told you that Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so one of the guys that works in the printing shop round the corner for where I work and from where David works uh, he does like tour management for bands that are sort of past it which is a pretty grim job but he's, he's a pretty grim guy so it kind of suits him um, and he was saying that the Bay City Rollers really pretty much hate the sight of each other now For example, when they're at shows, there was one show recently where it's all kind of like ladies in their 50s and 60s sort of throwing their bloomers kind of thing. And the band went to go on stage for uh, an encore and um, basically (laughs) the singer said, "Uh, do do I have time to go go to the toilet? And they were like, yeah, yeah, go for it, go for it. And as soon as he left the room, they all went on stage and stood on stage for like three minutes looking at their watches, shaking their heads, so the audience started booing and stuff. And then this singer runs out on stage, still like doing up his fly. And it's, this was just a constant thing of them trying to catch each other out. But not in a kind of like, hey, JAPE's on tour kind of way, but in a kind of, I fucking hate being around you guys, but this is the only way I can make money these days. But <laughs> <laughs> anyway, uh,
0: that's going to come up again later on as well. We just, <laughs> that's not the first time this chat's going to happen in the
1: course of this podcast. All right, so these two tracks are very similar. Um, so basically, uh, Joey Ramone was actually quoted as saying that um, hey-ho, let's go, that whole phrase was lifted almost directly from basically rollers, uh, uh, in his words, blitzkrieg bop was our Saturday night. So that's, that was happening in the States at that time And then meanwhile in the UK The same year, a few months later uh, You had The Damned uh, And The Damned with What was ostensibly the first Punk single in New Rose Again, people will disagree with that but
0: It's kind of strange like a story sea. see I don't know why, I don't know why I guess these things Have got to be I've got a new rose, so I've got a good Yes, I knew that I always would
1: is not about politics, it's about girls, it's about a girl, uh, which kind of set the tone for a lot of the stuff we're going to talk about later. Because I think punk's associated, especially for me, my my favourite punk's associated with quite political themes. But, you know, in the case of pop punk, it very rarely is associated with politics. Um, and when people do touch on politics, it can kind of scupper it a wee bit. Um, so New Rose was about a bit girl not about politics uh, meanwhile New Rose also references the opening line of the, the Shangri-La's song Leader of the Pack where uh, the, the, there's the kind of little dialogue at the start which is like Is she really going out with him? Is she really going out with him? Well there she is, let's
0: ask Betty, is that Jimmy's ring you're wearing?
1: Mm-hmm um, and that actually—that's the opening part of Neuros as well. So again, they were kind of making a nod to the 60s pop scene, and even though they were a response to it, they, they really liked it as well. It's, it's a melodic song, very tuneful. Um, the B-side to Neurose is also a cover of Help by the Beatles, albeit quite a quite a warped cover of Help, but a cover of Help. And I, th- I think it's also worth mentioning as well in terms of draw- drawing the connections between. Uh, these early punk bands and pop music of the time that The Damned, the bands like The Cramps, Sex Pistols and I think even just your kind of mental image of punk rockers you know, really, really heavy mascara like whited out faces, all kinds of things like that that owes a lot to Mark Bolan, it owes a lot to David Bowie it owes a lot to the acts like that at the time so I mean, I think what I'm trying to say is that from early on in punk music, like the, the, the pop-punk Tie in wasn't exclusively like a later development. It was actually something that was really, really present from the start. At times, ironically, but at times, like really unironically. In um, 1977, you had uh, The Buzzcocks, um, one of the earliest kind of combinations of speed, melody, and sort of angst. Their first single, actually, which is one that mo- I'd say most people probably haven't heard, is a track called Orgasm Addict. That sticks and you're an
0: orgasm addict. You're an
1: Predictably about masturbation uh, and I, there's a line in it it's a labour of love, fucking yourself to death uh, and I think again that's an early example of some of the kind of more Purell humour that would appear and what would distinguish pop punk from you know, more earnest punk uh, what would set no effects apart from bad religion, this kind of thing. And, you know, it's also something that the likes of Green Day, you know, Longview, their first, like, really big video, uh, owed a lot to that kind of, like, silliness, really. Um, 1977, you Generation X, uh, Gen X, uh, featuring Billy Idol. Um, and at the time, they were kind of dubbed plastic punk by the punk community. They were seen as, like, fakes and cash-ins. So, I mean, punk was still really about legitimacy at that point. And even though some of the things were quite playful, it was about being a real punk act. And Gen X were sort of seen as being quite contrived. Um, and I think, even though they weren't always taken seriously, first of all, the Generation the Gen X album now is, it holds up pretty well as a record. It's, it's, it's a really good album. Um, but it's also a big... It's also in its own way a big breakout success. It's the first time that teeny boppers really could access that music because punk was quite threatening. It was quite intimidating. It was the stuff their parents told them to stay away from. And then, as you can see, you know, Gen-, Gen X were on top of the pops, I mean, a dozen times, something like this. Uh, so the, they were a bridge to this mainstream audience that hadn't really existed thanks to you know the Six Pistols, Potty Mouths, and the Clashes, Politics, and things like that. Um, in 78, um, you had the undertones, uh, Teenage Kicks, I think it's a reference to actually to the MC5 Teenage Lust, but it basically sounds like T Rex sped up. Um, and while the undertones were quite involved in teenage sort of issues and angst and romance and these kind of things, the, their Irish contemporaries, bands like Stiff Little Fingers, for example, were at the time singing about politics. Um, they had a track called Alternative Ulster. Even though it was really about being bored, it was about being bored against the backdrop of the Troubles and a lot of their stuff was a lot more politically themed um, so the undertones as famous as they were for that were still quite consistent with this later idea of punk as being quite light hearted and I mean by about 1982 you had bands like The Clash playing Stadia and also at that time you had bands like Blondie Delvis Costello, The Police, The Go-Go's all these new wave acts uh, especially in the States kind of branching off and they were more sighting the buzzcocks and the undertones. Um, meanwhile, like back in 78, over in the States, in California, something was really starting to happen. Um, you had the Dickies, who were a huge uh, early innovator, really, really key, played super, super fast. And in fact, apparently, watching the Dickies play fast was originally what made Bad Brains speed up. And for those of you that are familiar with Bad Brains, Bad Brains had a massive influence on both the New York scene and the Washington, D.C. scene. And so, by proxy, the Dickies did help create this much more extreme form of music, even though they're taking it, Uh, their debut album, The Incredible Shrinking Dickies was dubbed easy listening punk and it was fast and intense but it was really silly Uh, also I think it's an interesting aside that the Dickies uh, did a cover of the Banana Splits theme, which you may well have heard (laughs) And around about that, well, shortly after the toy dolls covered Nella the Elephant. A couple of years later, the Vandals covered Summer Lovin' from Greece, and that all set the scene for this referencing where, of of pop in in the format of punk, and not even just pop, but like fun childish, you know, TV shows and things like that. it Kind of paved the way for me first in the give me gimmies as well, in in a big way. It became synonymous with these bands that they could do those songs for a laugh. I think in the early kind of US movement as well, between about 79 and 82, you Orange County, there was a lot happening there. The adolescents had recorded a track called Amoeba uh, in 81. Which is a good example of kinda of hardcore and tunefulness kinda of combining. Largely I think thanks to a guy called Rick Agnew who who played guitar for them and Rick Agnew was really ahead of his time in terms of his ability and what he was doing with it uh, 1980 at the Bank of the Agent Orange released a song called Bloodstains, it was quite a big breakout hit got a bit of student play although they actually later sued the offspring for in their opinion stealing uh, the, the guitar solo in the middle, the kind of Dick Dale style surf rock guitar solo for the track Come Out and Play in 82 social distortion M- M- "Mommy's little monster uh, Mike Ness's voice set the set the scene for bands like Jawbreaker and Rancid and then eventually bands like Hot Water Music who we spoke about in a, a previous show um, they, they, but they in their own way took elements of the hardcore scene and made it a bit more mainstream accessible and more radio friendly so there was like a convergence happening from all angles here Um in 82, The Descendants brought out Milo Goes to College, which was much more accessible than the bands they were touring with, bands like Black Flag. Uh, and it, it was a big breakthrough in combining styles, and it was also a, a huge moment in terms of signifying that bands punk bands don't have to sing about Reagan uh, in order to you know, entertain. And yeah, and then I think the last thing I'll really mention before I hand over to Mark is that from about 1982 to 1987, two bands that had a big influence in their own way, but they were kind of out the road uh, the, the, from Minnesota, which was kind of off the grid for the for the punk scene at the time, The Replacements and Husker Do. Um, they were a big sonic shift and they were maybe closer in sound to the kind of new wave progenitors like the Buzzcocks. Uh, and by the second record of both bands they were getting radio play um, Hoot and Annie by The Replacements and Zen Arcade by Husker du. Um and both eventually went on to sign to majors but their taking it played a big part in some of the some of the more rock based structures that happened later because they set the scene for alt rock whilst uh, from a punk basis Now we've got a wee clip
0: Yeah, I'll, I'll crack on then. So, Chris had mentioned Descendants, who were a band that formed in the time of of punk. They formed in 1977. Um, Bill Stevenson described their sound as being a coffeeed out blend of surf rock and uh, pop punk music, and I think that's pretty. I think that's pretty accurate. Um, so, from going from like bands like the Ramones and the Dam to bands like the Descendants and Black f- and, and Bad Religion, it's not quite a straight line um, but I think it's pretty damn close bands that were moved around that scene, so bands like ba- Bad Religion and, and Descendants in particular, they were also hanging out with hardcore punk bands like Minor Threat and Youth of Today and stuff like that you can kind of see, well if, if you think about punk music in, in that time it kind of goes two directions, right, either it goes to being like proper hardcore, you know, which is stuff that would then go on to influence bands like Hatebreed and Down and stuff like that, and then you've got pop punk. So, you know, because all the people that we're going to talk about when it comes to the golden age, you know, the, the 1990s, um, they were all hugely influenced by bad religion and descendants.
1: It's really it's really weird if you watch some of the old videos to see the descendants and Black Flag touring together, kind of prime, shredded, angry Henry Rollins, like shirtless, like raging against the universe, and the descendants singing about coffee and farts.
0: But
1: really... <laughs> um, so you can see where the pop
0: punk thing comes from for Descendants. This is a clip of Bikeage from Miley Goes to College. Beer, flame, Next, after that, is also a video of Bad Religion, the song New on No Control. There's literally there's so many songs you could pick from, from Bad Religion that they use that, the very specific harmonic kind of thing that the bands that influenced them most did, the Ramones did, they kind of feel spectator to you the kind of do-wop stuff.
1: Yeah. They do I, quite a lot of that. Something that's really interesting about Bad Religion, though, I mean, you, I'm assuming you're going to mention Suffer yeah. in, in some detail, but if for anyone that knows Bad Religion, they had uh, How Could Hell Be Any Worse, this kind of first album that was full-on punk, and they just committed like punk suicide with a record called Into the Unknown. It's not even on Spotify. It's not even on Spotify, it is how bad it is. notorious. It's so bizarre. Like they became this weird 80s synth band for one record and died on their arse and vanished uh, out of sheer shame, I think. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it was only after they came back that they really started to like really make big waves. But... Bad Religion themselves cited despite the fact that they had a lot of really really strong political content their whole career it was bands like The Jam Elvis Costello and The Ramones that were the biggest musical influences on them yeah definitely and that is a could, huge could, thing you um, could
0: probably sing Bad Religion <laughs> I could no <laughs> I'm not going to do that <laughs> you
1: can do it though you're a huge Bad Religion fan <laughs> I could masturbate in a computer screen the way that Greg Graffin did. I don't think I could sing the songs. <laughs>
0: uh, so another band that were that were brought up kind of mostly around about that time and Chris has mentioned them as well is Social Distortion. And um, Mummy's Little Monster was obviously their first album, but. It's not quite, it's it's very, very gruff, but uh, you can tell that Mike Ness is a singer at Social Distortion. He had a huge love of 50s rockabilly music, and you can hear that on on later records uh, in particular. Um, Operation Ivy, I want to talk about Operation Ivy, uh, who were a huge influence on a lot of punk bands. They were a kind of punk, hardcore, ska, crossover band. They did one album. famously contained um, Tim from Rancid who Rancid would then later go on to be one of the the foundational acts and I'm sure Dave will talk about that in a minute. Just
1: a heads up as well right Mm -hmm. for anyone that feels like me, Operation Ivy basically helped create Ska Punk so you know where to send the fucking bombs (laughs) alright? Because those absolute dicks set the scene for I mean, all number of monstrosities like Sublime, No Doubt, Mighty Mighty Boss Tones, Less Than Jake Real big fish. Absolutely. Fucking <laughs> ghastly shit. Um, yeah,
0: I'm no lover of ska punk either. And to be honest, in terms of Operation Ivy, I can take or leave them because of the huge ska punk element. But it's kind of cool though, because they were obviously listening to things like The Clash, who'd brought in, like, you know, reggae and stuff like that into punk music, into tone, mm-hmm. and then they took it to the next level. And then obviously they split up and they all went their separate ways, and Tim went on to form Rancid, who turned out to be a huge, a huge influence. But bands in the late 80s and early 90s, they were taking, like, the hardcore punk and merging it with, like, v- various different pop. Things so you can think about other bands. I'm going to rattle off some names. Um, you got know, bands like the Queers, uh, Screeching Weasel. You've mentioned Jawbreaker. Jawbreaker were also a massive sort of. It's hard to. It's really difficult to, to think about how big their influence is, given how small a band they are compared to a lot of their contemporaries. Um, their album Twenty Four Revenge Therapy came, came out in 1994, which was the same year as things like you know Dookie and, and Smash and all that. But it was nowhere near as as well known.
1: Like so um.
0: tight. are you going to uh, spend much time and look at?
1: On lookout, I
0: wasn't going to talk too much, about lookout. Well, basically, but that's like, a good brief time to jump in.
1: Yeah, from about 1987. This is the lookout's first release was Operation Ivy, um, and lookout ended up. I mean, I guess in, for some people, there's like I've seen it written that there were basically like four schools of, of punk at this time. So you had uh, like skate punk, like sort of epitaph, fat wreck, pennywise, no no effects, face to face, that kind of stuff. Sorry. Uh, this is like as of the early 90s uh, you had the kind of ramones core stuff that marks talking about which is sort of screeching weasel uh, the queer's a band called vindictives and now I just
0: don't care.
1: And all those bands actually released entire albums, the Ramones covers as well as if to underline just how fucking derivative they were. Um, you had Lookout, Style Punk, which eventually became Green Day, but it was stuff like Jawbreaker, J Church. Uh, this was in about San Francisco, Bay Area and a lot of that had big sky elements, including Operation Ivy as I mentioned, who went on to Influenced far too many fucking idiots. Um, and Cruise Records is another one. Um, Descendants, All, Drill Car, um, who were actually a little bit more innovative, especially bands like All, who could be a little bit more interesting in their arrangements and stuff. I think like Screeching Weasel are pretty significant in the minds of a lot of people that are into punk. Yeah. Uh, unfortunately, they're also pretty notorious now for reasons they'd probably rather forget. But uh, mm. like their second record sort of set a template for a lot of pop punk sounds. Uh, the themes are really reminiscent of Blink 182. Uh, they had a couple of landmark releases early on, like it tracks called Science or Myth and My Brain Hurts. Um, but ultimately, I mean, it kind of ended quite ignominiously for them, because eh? the singer, uh, well, basically the whole band quit the singer uh, after the singer assaulted uh, two women during a South by Southwest show in the crowd yeah. who were throwing ice cubes at them. <laughs>
0: I mean, speaking of the Tory stickheads, um, there's,
1: there's
0: also <laughs> there's also another big band that were influential in, in the skinny music is a band called Guttermouth as well. And Scott Adkins is well known for being uh, one of those guys that just likes to be like anti everything and hate everything, um, but he's. He, on the on Warped Tour a few times, he's uh, said the wrong things, like sort of transphobic, misogynistic, a lot of shit like that. Um, but their sound is also a huge influence on stuff like that. And it's interesting, so you me- it's interesting that you mentioned skate punk as well, because I have a skate punk bonus round. Okay. <laughs> so it kind of diverges at the, in the late 90, early nineties. It diverges, so bands take stuff from Bad Religion and then they, they go faster. NoFX being a good example of that. Uh, because they were always really sloppy and really fast, and the whole shtick was like, we're not, we're not really that good, but we just fucking write songs and play and just play it everywhere. So it's like taking like the the harder edged element of what was like bad religion and stuff. And Making it faster, and then,
1: um, um, can I just you're talking about no effects? Like from I mentioned epitaph sort of stuff. That's I'm guessing you've got a fair bit to say about epitaph, or only when it comes to the suggestions of the albums. That we <laughs> <laughs> right, okay, well, fair <laughs> enough. So epitaph, Brett Gurewitz because he does a massive heroin habit, um, bankrupted the whole thing. <laughs> and Epitaph started again and really started to make a bit of an impression in 86 they became quite a big influence in the scene, they went on to be an even bigger influence in the scene I think via things like the punk compilations which I'm sure even if you don't like this music, and believe me I do not like this fucking music mm-hmm. but I've seen those, those CDs everywhere, much like I've seen the drive-through uh, records, DVDs everywhere as well, like every charity shop in Glasgow was held together by those for a while um, but that label went on. The epitaph at the time went on to release No Effects. Who Mark's just played, especially around about that kind of harder era. It released L Seven. It released Pennywise, who I always get a row for mentioning too much on this show, but at least today have got an excuse. Mm-hmm. Um, Rancid and Offspring. So it, it was really, really significant. And actually, Fat Mike from No Effects said that. The Bad Religion album *Suffer*, which where the band actually came back into good favour, um, saved NoFX as a band. He was uh, he was Rodian at the time, I believe, and he was about to split up NoFX because it wasn't really going anywhere. And he said he heard *Suffer*, and uh, in his own words, "It's the best thing I ever heard. It was a perfect line between pop and hardcore." As a huge Bad Religion fan, I kind of I kind of agree with that. Um, the fact that Bad Religion helped NoFX stay together. <laughs> <laughs>
0: I mean Fat Mike is now a multi millionaire because of because of that, so um
1: there is no
0: justice. Uh, yeah, there is no justice. Um, other bands that are there were bands, they would they would kinda take influence from bands of suicidal tendencies who were hardcore bands but really fast. Um, institutionalized, obviously been a huge song which which most people will have heard. If not, you should go and look it up just for historical accuracy, if nothing else. They just keep me. they just
1: keep me.
0: Bills on the side. it's got be um, and then other bands that started in the 90s, uh, early 90s that are skate pong bands, bands like Lag Wagon, um, Good Riddance, Strung Out, um, who just basically push the speed, they just go faster and, and heavier and harder.
1: Um, it's inter- I think a band that will probably slip under the radar in most of our conversations Because they slipped under the radar of most people's lives uh, It was a group called the Dead Milkmen One Saturday I took a walk Kenny, you've heard the Dead Milkmen? Wow. All right, Mr. Kenny Bonilla, prime contributor, is the only guy old enough to have heard the Dead <laughs> <laughs> Um and they had, they had actually a really, really um, big single uh, called "Punk Rock Girl," and "Punk Rock Girl," I think, was. Technically the first punk rock song to ever get played in MTV, uh, it was in the eighty eight and it was when punk uh, sorry, it was when M T V was obviously becoming like hugely influential. It already was quite influential but it was kinda approaching its peak. Um, the band didn't really break overall. But that one breakout song really kinda blew open the doors for people to follow. It, it's basically like a punkier version of They Might Be Giants, but it is definitely punk rock, and it sounds like an early version of pop punk. Um, So this band, the Dead Milkmen, as anonymous as they are now, yeah, they they had a big part in making punk uh, an option for programmers. And honestly, if it wasn't for the fact that punk could get rammed down your throats in MTV, it would never have got where it got in the end, like most genres, to be fair.
0: So before I hand over to there, day, there's two things that I'll mention uh, in terms of pop-punk. Um, a lot, Some skate-punk bands would then go on to influence some of the bands in their classic era of pop-punk, like The Offspring, who ostensibly were a skate-punk band they started. Um, some skate-punk bands then became pop-punk bands, so, like No Use For A Name. Um, Tony Sly, I think, is one of the best punk songwriters, certainly, of of, of like the past 20 years, um, 30 years, probably, given how old the band are, or where. Um, sadly, he's no longer with us, but they were huge, like, it's a huge pop songwriter underneath it all, um, and he started shedding that and doing. More. I could talk about them for ages. We could do a whole, we could do a whole episode on them, but it's not about that. And then bands like Green Day and stuff, who were never quite skate punk, but you could tell they were. They all came from Gilman Street. They came from SoCal, and a lot, a lot of the nexus of of pop punk uh, comes from the, the West Coast. It comes from. not just particularly SoCal itself, but that sound influences a lot of pop-punk bands as well, even bands that are not from Southern California um, take huge influence from that, obviously offspring and been being two of the biggest ones because they all came out of that era um, and that's so,
1: I, I don't want to like assume too much because I certainly wouldn't have known it until I started reading out about this, but Mark just mentioned Gilman Street so Lookout Records, which was based in California, was founded by a guy called Larry Livermore, he actually named it after his old band of Lookouts um, and it was kind of based around this place called 924 Gilman Street, which was a kind of not-for-profit collective and venue and that's where so many of that early group of bands started and and, and met and came together. Uh, as we said, Operation Ivy were very big in that scene. Um, but also in 86, there was a band called Sweet Children, who formed from the audience in there, and they would later go on to become Green Day. Um, and a lot of the sounds from that era uh, play a massive, massive part in the catalogs of everybody that we've mentioned already on into bands like Bowling for Soup, things like that. So I mean that there were these kind of key kind of. I think back then it was actually quite. As much as I don't particularly like what came out of Lookout Records, most of it I do love the the early Green Day stuff. I love it, but the rest of it I can totally do without. But it's nice that a hub like that, like a physical hub, was such a a productive and important catalyst for this worldwide phenomenon. I, and I, I think before Dave picks up as well there's probably a few other points that are worth t- touching on because I think it obviously look at the way I'm dressed for fuck's sake um, 1991 Nirvana happened and mm-hmm. my wardrobe forever changed um, <laughs> I forever
0: remained the same depending on who you ask
1: yeah uh, and I think Nirvana considered themselves as a punk rock band, even though they sounded very different. We actually spoke about this in the grunge mixtape. A lot of the best um, grunge bands, Melvins, Nirvana, considered themselves punk bands, um, and they changed the makeup of the record industry certainly uh, in the U.S. and abroad. Uh, and all these alternative sounds started to get snapped up. Um, they cracked open MTV. I mean, I mentioned the Dead Milkmen, but Nirvana really cracked open MTV to all these alternative bands. Um, I, I mean, and and. You know, 1991 is not known as the year punk broke necessarily for pejorative reasons even though that's maybe why Sonic Youth used it. Um, the Teen Spirit video for example looks like uh, a punk rock show. There's a, an Offspring video uh, from the Smash album that looks almost identical uh, albeit with added white guy cornrows which is a nice <laughs> touch. Um, even like bands like Bad Religion and Offspring they really got major deals on the back of Nirvana Breaking the way they did Because I mean obviously that happened for like Jawbox It happened for Helmet It happened for any number of really cool Interesting alternative bands But it also bled into these kind of The the fringes of this punk movement That were happening at the time Um, So they played a big part in that sense I mean see NoFX And Fat Wreck So it was like round about 1992 That became like a big Mm -hmm. deal right It seems to me as a kind of casual observer um, That they are Hugely pivotal in the history of it no? yeah I mean Fat Rec are
0: still a huge thing I mean there's the fact like Epitaph had its sound Fat Rec has got a sound it's still, it's still got a very particular sound the bands are on it now they don't sound like anything no effects, but they all sound quite similar to each other in a lot of ways and one of the things one of the only things I like about Fat Mike is the fact that he's managed to keep that like just like just completely independent Epitaph has got a massive distribution deal with Sony Records um, Fat Rec don't have anything like that and he's a middleman there because of being a punk? Like, how is that even like, like? He, he, there's videos of him online, like, playing golf and taking this fucking kid to his private school, like, dressed fucking full Mohawk and, like, you know, just like, it's just really weird, man, but that's the only thing I really admire about Fat Mike is, is that um, I think I can pretty much take or leave the guy and most of his music to be fair but um, Fat Rec is a, was a huge deal kind of started as a huge deal I know a lot of bands like still want to get signed to Fat Rec I also know some bands some I know personally who couldn't wait to get off Fat Rec because it's like a ceiling as well like, you can only get so far and then after that you, can, uh, you if you want to go further you need to move to a bigger label So it's still kind of in the middle. But yeah, a huge influence. So, like, I mean,
1: NoFX and Fat Wreck have a huge part to play in the sort of mainstreaming of that, like, gross comedy thing as well, right? The humour element. NoFX, particularly, yeah. Yeah. Not a lot of Fat Wreck bands, like, have that
0: vibe to them, that that kind of same pure yeah
1: so it was something that the vandals had started to move into Mm -hmm. and later in their career they started to get a bit more smutty and silly and inane Um, but no effects seemed to really pick up on that and took that kind of bad religion-y musicianship um, and kind of gravitated towards that much lighter sillier lyricism not Uh, all the time, I mean no no effects are at their best when they're being
0: serious um, and whether they're writing songs which are criticizing like the punk rock scene or major labels or, or you know being political,
1: no effects um, are at their best when they're switched off. <laughs> <laughs> um, but they also was it no effects or was it fat, a Fat rec band that really took that sound of Operation Ivy and sort of started adding trumpets and that? Where did that come from?
0: That was that's rancid. It comes from yeah. it comes from and Out come the Wheels mostly. That's where that comes from, which was on Epitaph. Also, oh, so listen Jake Started in the late 80s yeah, well, as well so, I was going
1: to mention um, I was going to mention like Bands like Lagwagon as well Lagwagon like, never were never like No that. not so much yeah, I don't mean no. sorry I don't mean in terms of the ska But in terms of like The, the names that started to bubble up From that That uh, label And that side of the scene uh, Propaganda's early stuff Propaganda good, yeah. good riddance as well Is that right Yeah
0: Um, Strung out. Who also mentioned all all face the face to face. But they're skate punk yeah, they're all skate punk bands. Though. Well, you
1: know? that's it. Fat Wreck. Kind of took that skate punk crossover and sort of cemented that so- SoCal sound, didn't they? They, they kind of like MXPX and Good Charlotte and that. They were they were they kind of owe it to that. And it's like a it's like a sweeter version of like Bad Religion and TSOL. It's like a less earnest. Angsty or not angsty, but a less earnest kind of politically charged mm-hmm. version of that, and that's that that plays a huge part in the in the, in the early history of uh, what became commercialised pop punk. Yeah, yeah, and and the other thing they did as well was Jawbreaker, obviously, which we already talked about. It kind of set the scene for bands like Get Up Kids and Jimmy Eat World and things like that, mm-hmm. we'll um, about which that. we kind of debated. I mean, can I just get a show of hands here, right? Does everybody know Jimmy Eat World? <laughs> All right, so who thinks Jimmy Eat World are pop punk? Put your hand up if you think they're pop punk <laughs> See, fuck you <laughs> So we had a debate before I mean that's half the room That's half the room, uh, half the room. Yeah. I personally don't think Jimmy Eat World, I, I, don't, I, think, they're, I, don't either. I think they're adjacent mm-hmm. um, I think The thing with Jimmy Eat World is they sort of Became retrospectively pop punk well, I think maybe like a few of their tracks are very pop punk, and I then so a few, yeah, but, I mean, and then they definitely go way more emo. A bit like other stuff. A bit like Get Up Kids. I think they started as like one of these pure Jade Tree kind of emo bands, and then gravitated towards more simplistic, catchy songs. Save the today as well. Good example. Yeah, so. yeah, similar. And, and, and they were close to pop punk at points, but I think the fact, so their sound, Jimmy Eat World and all that, sort of led on to bands like All American Rejects. And I think as a result, it sounds more pop punk in retrospect than it actually was at the time. I, don't, I think it's more of a retrospective thing. I don't think it actually sounds much like the pop punk bands. And certainly contemporaneously, they, they didn't sound like that. They didn't sound like the pop punk acts that were happening at that moment, in my opinion. Yeah, I just I, I, I when you look back and like on pretty much every like pop punk uh, playlist or compilation or something, they always have a Jimmy Eat World song on. But yeah, they're not necessarily a pop punk band. They just wrote some really good pop punk songs.
0: I mean, there's bands that they're associated with. I don't want to jump my gun here, but there's those bands that were associated with that sound at that time, who are also probably pop punk bands, but. Our categorised as been emo bands to you know like Taking Back Sunday and My Chemical Romance bands like that who are clearly like I'm not okay with a fucking pop punk song. A lot of their songs are pop punk songs, um, but they would never be considered that. Anyway, Dave. Anyway, right. So for the next five or six years. I want to talk about the golden era of. Uh, wait, you went over for five or six years. <laughs> oh well.
1: From that, yeah, <laughs> I'm catching up on all the stuff. have oh, wait a minute, what, what year are you? So going I'm going from?
0: from 1998 for the next. Oh 98, okay. Yeah, you start 98. Yeah. Oh, there's some. There's stuff I'm going to cover. Yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> have you still got some stuff to talk oh, about? There's definitely stuff we've not talked about. We should be spoken about at this particular. I'll go show. for it. <laughs> Get a shit together, yeah, man. Uh, so, we're thinking that like after all the sort of skate punk influence started to really feed into all these kind of pop punk bands, then it gets big in the mid 90s. So, one of the classic things about Smash is the fact that a lot of people attribute the fact that the offspring Smash became, became so big because
1: it was released literally a week after Kuckabane died. It was it came out the day that his body was found, mm. yeah, and um, uh, 16 million record sales for Smash, um, the third offspring album. <laughs>
0: And it's one of the most popular independent records It's the biggest selling independent record Mm. of all time Uh, And the the record that followed afterwards is really interesting as well Um, But around The Offspring uh, we also have things like uh, Green Day, Uh, Dookie We we can't just say that in half a sentence We're we're not, we're going to talk about (laughs) that (laughs) I know you want to talk about that Uh, Dukey is probably a lot more influential and, and a lot of pop-punk bands now than the Ospreng ever were the were I always showed a lot closer to being hard rock and they certainly do become that as, as their career goes on mm,
1: I don't really agree um, with
0: that but okay <laughs> Oh, it's going to be tasty <laughs> later on, <laughs> and yeah, No Effects, Punkin Rub like, huge influence. Um, yeah, it sold a million records
1: mm-hmm. for No Effects album. It was massive, yeah.
0: yeah. And Out Come the Wolves. So I mean, and that came out in 1995. So if you think about Epitaph in 94, 95, like Brett Gerowitz could buy so much fucking heroin. amount <laughs> of records mm-hmm. he sold with Osbourne and Rancid, <laughs>
1: rolling in heroin?
0: <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> Uh, but yeah, in that in that kind of key era is not just as there are bands like that but there's also a lot of underground bands who take the pop-punk thing and then add it to kind of more hardcore stuff which is the pop-punk that I like which we're not going to speak very much about which is bands like Kid Dynamite. One, two- those bands are hugely influential in bands like New Found and stuff like that, because they were hardcore, and those guys were hardcore kids when they were growing up, and Mm -hmm. they were like the cool hardcore kids really liked those pop-punk bands because of that, you know so yeah, 94-95 is when it starts to grow big I Uh, mean,
1: 94 is the commercial apex of it, right? Uh, I mean, even though there were bigger bands, or maybe, you know, Blink-182 and stuff came after, the record sales in 94-95 were astronomical, Mm -hmm. you know, like all-time biggest selling record type sales, Mm -hmm. yeah um,
0: and, and that's kind of it does come from Rancid, Ospring, Green Day and NoFX, who were the four key big pop punk bands that released records in those two years and it just forever changed the landscape of, of music as we know it because it then starts to seep into pop generally pop music generally which I mm. think is probably a good time to talk about When, we get
1: talk, when do we get to
0: talk about Dookie? Dookie, oh go on, I know you're dying to talk about. Because I mean,
1: yeah, I mean, I don't think you it's can... a great
0: album. Like, why not?
1: Dookie is the Hiroshima of <laughs> <laughs> the Second World War in pop punk. It's like, talking Dookie... about fucking scatological humour, mate. It's called Dookie. I mean, Green Day, obviously, as I mentioned, had kind of been a band since effectively '86 as Sweet Children. The first record, 1039, smoothed out slap hairs as a combination of two EPs. Is that right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> really good, um, but dead primitive and has a lot more in common with some of those kind of proto-acts Kerplunk is like the first signs of this like indie punk sort of like commercial punk it's really structure based punk rock It's, it's, it's a pretty remarkable record actually and I was going to nominate it for my choice anything by Green Day just probably by default shouldn't apply, I mean it's just pretty ridiculous how enormous that band is really good and it did only sell 50,000 records when it came out it was the Longview single that actually was first picked up though from Dookie by MTV I think partly because of the content of the lyrics and the style of it as well as the bassline, that sort of way of playing punk rock was just so unexpected I think for audiences that it, it got into heavy rotation in MTV2, purely in the back of requests and then you know, by now Dookie sold 20 million, well over 20 million copies you know, it had Grammys, it had hit singles all over it. I think one of the interesting things about Dookie that doesn't get talked about and it's interesting in the context of the fact that we're being quite comprehensive here that the cover the cover art of dookie is not only quite iconic but it's quite significant in that first of all the album landed in the music scene like an atomic bomb it really did it just completely obliterated so much stuff around it much like nevermind but maybe even slightly more because it had a, an even bigger reach because it was so much more lighthearted and so much more kind of whimsical mm. um in a way that nirvana a bit like radiohead you know so still alienate people by being a bit morose and a bit kind of preachy um that crazy busy cover, Adookie, really kind of nicely uh, represents the huge mix and variety of elements and influences from the like the scatology to the, the aggro, the self awareness, the humour, the angst. These are all things that went into making this really odd, jumbled up sound that. Green Day represented. I mean, it's taken us up until this point to even try and vaguely summarise it. it. There was so many things going on in terms of the pop-punk sound, and that, that cover, the busyness and silliness of that cover, I think really ca- captures that. And I even I think the fact that it's drawn really embodies one of the key aspects of pop-punk that would elevate it above even grunge, I think, in terms of like commercial appeal in the sense that that childish, good-natured that childish good-naturedness. The, the, the silliness, the light-heartedness, uh, a bit like we were saying about Gen X, allowed pop-punk to reach younger kids than grunge would reach. It allowed them to reach teeny boppers and even normies, you know? Because uh, like around about that time, you started to notice people pulling up to school and they're like their dad's car with these tracks playing. And it was like, wow, this this music's actually appealing to people that would usually only listen to completely commercial Produced stuff at the time, and that I think obviously the ears pricked up of the industry at that point and by, certainly by the turn of the century, they were realising that they could synthesise that to, to um, great uh, financial reward. One thing I find interesting about
0: Dookie is that you said that Kerplunkland sold 50,000 records, and that's what I actually got them, the major record label deal that made Dookie made them produce a record like Dookie, which is still hugely influential even to this day Um, and it's like the same feeding frenzy that happened around New Metal right, it's like as soon as Nirvana started getting big record labels were just like fuck let's just grab anything that's got guitars and make it sound as big as Nirvana and by large, it worked out for Green Day, anyway, that's for sure. Yeah, and we'll later do, for the offspring as well.
1: Much like Offspring Bad Religion, they were one of those bands that were just swept up in that feeding frenzy. Because if that hadn't happened, Nirvana hadn't happened, and the focus had lain elsewhere, then I can imagine that 50,000 wouldn't have been enough to get them that deal, and it wouldn't have been enough to create Dookie the way they did. Um, and things would be very different, obviously.